Before we dive into one iconic horror film moment, let's talk about another, slightly more recent one, and that is coming to us from Buffalo Bill's house. The real home where the five-time Academy Award-winning film Silence of the Lambs was filmed, and it's now open to the public for overnight stays, guided tours, special events, on-location filming and photo shoots, and even event rental space. Retrace the footsteps of Clarice Starling and Buffalo Bill in their interactive film sets. Buffalo Bill's Workshop of Horrors and their brand new well film set built in partnership with the legendary special effects artist Tom Savini. Buffalo Bill's house can sleep up to eight guests at once and they only book one party at a time so you are guaranteed a private and immersive experience. Explore their two-acre riverfront property while staying on their grandiose 1910 Victorian home and learn why they are the premier cinematic destination. Located in Periopolis, Pennsylvania, just 30 miles from Pittsburgh. Check out buffalobillshouse.com for more information, or else you will get the hose again. We here at the Golden Silent Films podcast would be remiss if we left you without telling you about an amazing event coming up at Buffalo Bill's house. For the very first time, in an ultra-exclusive and intimate event, Actress Brooke Smith, who famously portrayed the unforgettable role of captured victim Catherine Martin in the film Silence of the Lambs, will be visiting Buffalo Bill's house. Fans are now able to purchase a ticket for a meet-and-greet with Brooke Smith during the weekend of September 22nd through 24th, 2023, with multiple time slots available. All guests will receive a full guided tour of Buffalo Bill's house and the opportunity to meet actress Brooke Smith, who played Buffalo Bill's captured victim, Catherine Martin. Brooke will be signing 8x10 autographs and memorabilia and taking pictures with all the tour guests. There will even be a special VIP experience add-on with Brooke for the silent superfan who wants a photo in the well with Brooke dressed as her character, Catherine Martin. That sounds like an amazing event at an incredible, incredible location. Now, we here at the Golden Silent Films podcast aren't just saying these things. We have been there. We have taken the tour and loved every second of it. In fact, we loved it so much, we can't stop telling all our friends how much they need to experience it. I mean, the tours are personally conducted by Buffalo Bills house owner Chris Rowan and are filled with so much behind-the-scenes information of the making of Silence of the Lambs You will learn so much. During the exclusive tour, intimate groups of guests are able to visit the home and walk the steps of Clarice Starling as she tracked down Buffalo Bill. Tours last approximately 90 minutes in length and are available at buffalobillshouse.com. And we will have a link to that in the description of the show, so please do check them out. They are fantastic family-run business. Don't miss your chance to be a part of film history and see Silence of the Lambs up close at Buffalo Bill's house. I let him take the helm, while the rest began thorough search, all keeping abreast with lanterns. We left no corner unsearched. As there were only big wooden boxes, there were no odd corners where a man could hide. Men much relieved when search over and went back to work cheerfully, writes Bram Stoker in his novel Dracula. Unfortunately... That boat ride, it's all downhill from there. Hello everyone and welcome back to the official podcast of Doomed Fictional Boat Voyages. The ship names may change and the actors playing vampires come and go, but the Golden Silent Films podcast is always here. We provide you with our distinct brand of infotainment in hopes 
that we all make it to our ports, be it London or Germany, alive. Before we disembark coffins in tow, let's give the usual Golden Silent Films podcast social media roundup. As per usual, please float on over to Golden Silence Cast on Instagram for up-to-date info on this little podcast. And for all of you Dracula fanatics out there on Twitter or X, just follow at Golden Silence 1 or just search Golden Silence Cast and we ought to pop up. All these screen names and sites will be in the episode description in case you're interested in hopping on board. We would love to have you join in the fun. At both social spaces, you'll get behind-the-scenes pics and info, upcoming episode reveals, and other fun film-related materials. And great photos of our official podcasts, Gizmo and Soda Pop. Also, if you're listening to this program on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, do leave a review, a rating, or both. All of those ratings and reviews help immensely. You've got opinions, and unlike abandoned ghost ships, we want to see them. Live your best review leaving life or afterlife, and help our show grow and reach fellow silent film fans. Whether getting us more exposure in the podcast world or letting us know how we can improve, we appreciate the feedback and always want to bring you the best show possible. And do subscribe to the Golden Silent Films podcast. While our output can be sparse, if you are subscribed, you will never miss an episode, and the moment new content drops, it'll go straight to your listening device of choice. We are already deep into our third season and don't want you to miss a second. So before we get into the blood and guts of this episode, how about a little backstory uh, to start with? This episode is really another example of our short attention span here at the Golden Silent Films podcast. It happened last episode. It happened again this episode. We had different episodes planned for August, but when we saw The Last Voyage of the Demeter was coming out in theaters, we couldn't help but get inspired to take that film and give it our own unique Nosferatu twist. Every year on the show, we do an episode that takes a new and hopefully interesting angle and look at our favorite silent film, Nosferatu. Seeing the subject matter of the Demeter flick, I knew that F.W. Murnau's take on the infamous literary death cruise was really deserving of a deeper look. I mean, there's so many interesting facets to famous film boat rides with Dracula as a passenger, and this one really stands out. I mean, Count Orlock is really, arguably the worst cruise passenger ever, and we are here to talk about it. Before we get into the sea-based bloodshed, let's look at some honorable mentions in the realm of the Dracula Nosferatu films and give their unique takes on boats and blood. First on our list, there is the 1992 Francis Ford Coppola film Bram Stoker's Dracula. This film really doesn't give us much in the way of boat scenes. Although this one is one of my all-time favorite vampire films, it is not because of the action on board the Demeter. It really cuts that whole bit out, and we really get to experience that seafaring really only via montage. Not the best uh, theatrical representation of the boat ride, thus it gets just a basic mention. But, 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 in our upcoming bonus episode focused on the last voyage of the Demeter, you'll look at that montage of a sailing ship in a whole new light. Really, a more inspirational light, you could say. But we'll leave that story for that bonus, non-canon episode of Undead Vampire Shenanigans. Now, another more honorable mention goes to 2001's Shadow of the Vampire, directed by E. Elias Merhage and starring John Malkovich and Willem Dafoe. This movie centers on a fictional retelling of the filming of Nosferatu, with the gimmick being that Max Schreck slash Count Orlock is actually a real vampire with a tendency to kill Murnau's film crew. I love this movie. It is a gem. It is so freaking good. 
And since we do a Nosferatu-themed episode every year here on the show, you can bet we will eventually, at some point, sink our teeth into that movie. But for now, though, let's look at how they handled the infamous boat scene. In the film, Count Orlok is deathly afraid of boats and sailing, so he makes a deal with Friedrich Wilhelm Murnau. As part of the deal, Murnau has a replica of the Empusa built outside of Castle Orlok. They film the scenes, and it turns out pretty good. What you see in the movie. If you don't count the crew member that Orlok killed, of course, though not much blood is spilt, this boat segment does provide some great character moments between Defoe and Malkovich, both together and individually. Our last pre-show port of call takes us to the doomed ship inhabited by the vampire portrayed by Klaus Kinski in Werner Herzog's 1979 horror classic, Nosferatu the Vampire. This ship throws our whole naming scheme out the window. There's no myth or legend or monster that Werner Herzog turns to to see the Dracula's ship name. Not even close. For Herzog's film, the dread ship was renamed the Contamana after the Peruvian city located on the Ucayali River. While the name was quite different, this film took a great deal of inspiration from Murnau's original while putting a twist on moments we know so well. In his BFI Film Classics book on the film, S.S. Prower explains one of these remixed moments. Prower writes, Dracula looms up in what is to become a ghost ship, not as in Murnau against the clearly visible rigging of the ship whose last survivor, the captain, tied to his wheel he is menacing, but against a blackness quite different from the blue-tinted darkness in later scenes of Herzog's films, which echoes the color-tinted effects of the best Murnau versions. The deep black of the background lends an uncanny force to Nosferatu's chalk-white face and predatory hands. In the end, no matter what version of the cinematic block bloodsucker you seek, you'll get a solid take on the ill-fated voids of the Demeter or the Impusa. Whilst we're talking about these two famous names, let's jump into the meat of our episode. While we are going to look into the two versions of the Seven Seas death trip from Transylvania to London or Germany, our itinerary for this trip will start with the original literary account from Bram Stoker's famous novel, Dracula. That will be followed up by a deep dive into the Impusa from Friedrich Wilhelm Murnau's legendary film, Nosferatu, a symphony of horror. When you think of cruises, yacht rides, or the old-fashioned schooner ship, there's a bit of magic and mystique. We tend to look back on life on the high seas with a certain amount of love. The life of a pirate is something audiences look at fondly, with that sense of freedom sailing through the crisp ocean air. Movies have only expanded our obsession with boat living and high seas adventure, but public service announcement it is always good to remember that the sea is disease and danger wrapped in darkness and silence. On this episode of the podcast, our attention is squarely on those ocean voyages that have gone horribly, horribly wrong. This episode is a trip into the myths, legends, and lore surrounding the specter of the ghost ship. Tales of ghost ships and other various phantom vessels have been around for ages. Rumors of sightings and other tall tales have spread as far and wide as any ship's cargo. There are two major varieties of ghost ships floating around out there. The first is the literal ghost ship, a spectral ship haunting the seas or warning of impending danger. The most famous of this group is the legendary Flying Dutchman. This doomed ship is cursed to never make port and sail the seven seas forever. Musicians and authors have expanded on the myth of the Dutchman to involve love and loss. According to Wikipedia, the oldest extant version of the legend dates from the 18th century. According to legend, if hailed by another ship, the crew of the Flying Dutchman might try to send messages to land or to people long dead. 
Reported sightings in the 19th and 20th centuries claimed that the ship glowed with a ghostly light. In ocean lore, the sight of this phantom ship functions as a portent of doom. The history of maritime mysteries abounds with tales of ghost ships. The mid-1700s would see the tale of the Lady Lovabond, wrecked in February of 1748 off the coast of Kent, England. Legend has it the ship reappears off the Kent coast every 50 years. For more inland spooks, there's the Eliza Battle, a paddle steamboat destroyed by fire on the Tom Bigby River in Alabama. With an estimated 30 people dead, the haunted ship has been sighted on cold and windy winter nights, fully engulfed in flames. And like the literary and cinematic ships we are about to talk about, to see the Eliza Battle is to be warned of impending disaster. Now, a more historically accurate and substantiated version of the ghost ship tale comes in the way of ships found abandoned with no clear reasons for their desertion. These ships were found run aground or still floating without a soul on board. A lot like the doomed Demeter and Impusa we're about to talk about. In the mid-1700s, there was the Seabird, a merchant brig that grounded herself on Easton's Beach, Rhode Island. The ship seemed to have been abandoned within sight of land as coffee was still boiling on the galley stove. There's also the case of the HMS Resolute, a ship of the British Royal Navy abandoned after encountering ice in Canada. The unmanned ship sailed 1,200 miles before being found on September 10, 1855. Mystery is also afoot in the January 1921 discovery of the abandoned Carol A. Deering off the coast of Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. Perhaps the most famous of these is the Mary Celeste. In late 1872, the Mary Celeste left New York, sailing to Genoa, Italy. A British ship found the Mary Celeste adrift in choppy seas. A boarding party was sent over, and what they found answered nothing, only leaving more questions. These are just some of the many water-based ships sailing from beyond the grave or sailing without a soul on board. There's also the phantom canoe of Lake Rotomahana in New Zealand. There's the SS Bannockburn that vanished in Lake Superior and came to be known as the Flying Dutchman of the Great Lakes. In the great white north of Canada, there was the explosive demise of the American schooner Young, che Young Teaser in Mahone Bay, Nova Scotia, during the War of 1812. In the years since, there have been reports of a burning apparition called the Teaser Lights at the site of the explosion. Truth be told, I was quite surprised that Canada has such a high number of ghost ships on the loose. If you're into phantom ship phenomena, look no further than our neighbors to the north, Canada. From our family here at the Golden Silent Films podcast to our listeners in the Great White North, do be careful on the waters out there. For this breakdown of bloody boat rides, we're going to focus on two boats and look at their namesakes and why they provide such an important view and insight into the ships and characters themselves. Also, as we examine the boat voyage across two mediums, there is a great resource I came across and we'll be referring to quite a bit in this first section of the episode. That great work came from Emily Alder and her article, Dracula's Ghost Ship, published in the Irish Journal of Gothic and Horror Studies 15 from Autumn 2016 edition. She provides some great insights in this article that really helped this episode immensely. The names of these two Gothic ghost ships play a great deal into their fates and their role in each story. In the novel written by Bram Stoker, we, we are introduced to the Demeter, the future ship of death wasn't always attached to myth and legend, though. Alder writes, In Dracula, Demeter has a material origin in the sense that it is based on a real ship. Stoker recorded in his notes the case of a Russian schooner, the Dimitri, which was wrecked relatively gently in Whitby Harbor in 1885. This ship, 
cargo, silver sand from the mouth of the Danube, ran into harbor by pure chance avoiding rocks, and put out two anchors in harbor, which broke, and she slewed round against the pier. In the novel, Stoker recasts this unusual yet plausible incident in a gothic mode, laden with the significance of the vampire's arrival and his role in causing the wreck. It is in Greek mythology that we are first introduced to Demeter, the Olympian, go Olympian goddess of the harvest and agriculture presiding over crops, grain, food, and the fertility of the earth. Although she is mostly known as a grain goddess, she also appeared as a goddess of health, birth, and marriage, and had connections to the underworld, and it is those underworld connections that will command our attention for this episode. You see, Demeter had a kind and beautiful daughter called Persephone, whom she loved very much. Persephone, like her grain goddess mother, loved nature. One day, she was walking in a beautiful meadow and gathering flowers to take home when a huge hole opened up in the ground. Hades, the god of the underworld, arrived through the hole and captured Persephone. He wanted the gorgeous Persephone to be his bride. Demeter could no longer see her daughter and missed her so very much. She was so sad it affected the harvests of all things across Greece. Crops, fruit, and nature all ceased to grow. She went to Zeus, the king of the gods, to ask him to help get her daughter back from Hades. Zeus could see how Demeter's sadness was affecting Earth, so he agreed to help her. Meanwhile, Hades wanted to make it more difficult for Persephone to leave, and gave her some tasty, tasty underworld food, a fruit called a pomegranate. Zeus visited Hades to ask him to let Persephone leave. Hades said, Persephone can only leave if she hasn't eaten any of the foods that I've given her, but she already had. Persephone had eaten six pomegranate seeds. Zeus and Hades agreed that Persephone would leave to spend six months in the underworld, but that she could return to Earth for the other six months of the year. One month for every pomegranate seed eaten. From then on, whenever Persephone rejoined Demeter on Earth, Demeter would be so happy and crops, fruit, and plants would grow and flourish beautifully. But when she went back to the underworld with Hades for six months, the plants would stop growing entirely. The Demeter, like the Count himself, exists in an in-between state, writes Emily Alder. Undead, unreal, unnatural, other. In Greek mythology, Demeter was a goddess of fertility in the harvest who rescued her daughter Persephone from abduction to the underworld by Hades, and so the name alone of Dracula's ship suggests slippage between worlds. But there is much more than this to Demeter's significance in the novel. The ship and what happens aboard her foreshadow many elements of the rest of the story, working to develop thematic and symbolic concerns connected with the vampire at a point at which Dracula himself is still occluded by the narrative. That a vampire might exist has not yet occurred to or been admitted by the characters in Britain. The Impusa, on the other hand, the dreaded and deserted ship of Murnau's voyage of horror, comes from similar mythical origins, but with a twist. The Impusa is a pretty creepy namesake to give to Orlok's mode of transportation. When you see what the deal is, the connection seems pretty clear. While the name of the Demeter comes from a character of great love on a ship that is ultimately corrupted, the Impusa is a character made of pure corruption. According to Ratika Dar in the article The Impusa, Beautiful Monsters of Greek Mythology, for the website historycooperative.org, we learn about the terrifying visage of an Impusa. Dar writes, Some sources say that they could take on forms of beasts or beautiful women. Some sources say that they had one leg made of copper or bronze, or the leg of an ass. Aristophanes, the Greek comic playwright, writes for some bizarre reason that the Ampusa had one leg of cow dung in addition to the copper leg. Instead of hair, they were supposed to have flames wreathed around their heads. 
The Impusa, though, wasn't just creepy to look at. If you were a young man full of sweet, sweet blood, she might be creeping on you as well. She would feast on blood by seducing young men as they slept before drinking their blood and eating their flesh. All in all, a pretty gnarly creature to encounter, and a perfect namesake for a death ship. Whilst both names come from wildly different sides of the mythological spectrum, they both work perfectly to convey a sense of history, emotion, and violence to their respective schooners. Earlier in the episode, we talked about ghost ships, both real and legendary and mythical, and it's some of those stories that really resonated with Bram Stoker and really had a heavy influence on his writing of that incredible chapter from Dracula. I mean, these tales were widespread and served to inspire countless storytellers for a whole host of reasons, not just Bram Stoker and his bloodthirsty count. Emily Alder explains, In literature, ships can function as gothic spaces in a variety of ways. Shipwrecks, for example, conceal and preserve dark secrets that haunt the living. A wreck conceals the body of the eponymous Rebecca in Daphne du Maurier's 1938 novel, and its discovery exposes answers to the puzzles oppressing the second Miss de Winter. Even viable ships can be claustrophobic spaces or expose the extreme psychological effects of isolation, illness, or starvation, such as in Joseph Conrad's Shadow Line in 1915, or in Prendick's near brush with cannibalism in the dinghy of the Lady Vane in H.G. Wells's The Island of Dr. Moreau in 1896. In more explicitly supernatural texts, Gothic ships cross normally uncrossable boundaries between life and death, sea and air, as does the Flying Dutchman in Frederick Marriott's The Phantom Ship in 1839. Mr. Swales, a character who is friends with Mina and Lucy, in Stoker's novel, in his own unique and kooky way, sees the, the first appearance of the strange ship in the distance. Stoker writes, I can't make her out. She's a Russian by the look of her, but she's knocking about in the queerest way. She doesn't know her mind a bit. She seems to see the storm coming, but can't decide whether to run up north in the open or to put in here. Look there again. She has steered mighty strangely, for she doesn't mind the hand on the wheel. We'll hear more about her before this time tomorrow, he says. And with that, the ship of death has arrived at Whitby. Utilizing the narrative device of newspaper clippings, the first date at August 8th, we experienced the landing of Count Dracula's ship. The report indicates that the recent storm, one of the worst storms on record, was responsible for the shipwreck of a strange Russian vessel. The article also points out several notes that indicate the vessel's strange method of navigation. We learned that observers feel that the captain had to have gone mad, because in the midst of the storm, the ship's sails were wholly unfurled. Many witnesses to the approaching of the strange vessel were ga gathered on one of Whitby's piers to await the ship's arrival. With the spotlight shining, witnesses could see the terrible fate of the captain. Stoker wrote, The man was simply fastened by his hands, tied one over the other to a spoke of the wheel. Between the inner hand and the wood is a sorry, between the inner hand and the wood was a crucifix the set of beads on which was fastened being around both wrists and wheel, and all kept fast by the binding cords. The poor fellow may have been seated at one time, but the flapping and buffeting of the sails had worked through the rudder of the wheel and dragged him to and fro so that the cords with which he was tied had cut flesh to the bone. As the vessel violently ran aground, an immense dog sprang up on deck from below, jumped from the ship, and ran off. Upon closer inspection, it was discovered that the man lashed to the wheel had a crucifix clutched in his hand. According to local doctor's opinion, the man had been dead for at least two days. 
Coast Guard officers found a bottle in the dead man's pocket, carefully sealed, which contained a roll of paper. In a newspaper article the next day, it was revealed that the ship, a schooner, was a Russian vessel, one from Varna, called the Demeter. The only cargo on board was a ballast of silver sand and a number of great wooden boxes filled with mold. It is revealed that the cargo was consigned to a Whitby solicitor, Mr. S.F. Billington, who has claimed the boxes. The strange circumstances of the ship's arrival become the talk of the town for the last few days, and there has also been interest in locating the big dog that jumped ashore on the first night. With the dog officially missing, townsfolk are worried that he may pose a threat. The narrative continues with excerpts from the Demeter's log. The log starts on the 6th of July, which comes a week after Jonathan Harker's last entry in his journal. According to the log entries, all is calm aboard the ship for a handful of days. On the 16th of July, however, is when things start to turn murdery. By now, one crew member is found missing, and the log seems to indicate that all the sailors are worried and anxious. The next day, we had our first sighting. On 17 July, yesterday, one of the men, Olgarin, came to my cabin and in an awestruck way confided to me that he thought there was a strange man aboard the ship. He said that in his watch he had been sheltering behind the deckhouse, as there was a rainstorm, when he saw a tall, thin man who was not like any of the crew come up the companionway and go along the deck forward and disappear. Upon inspection of the ship is found to be clear. Five days later, on the 22nd of July, the ship passes Gibraltar and sails out through the straits with apparently no further problems. Two days later, another crew member is reported missing, which leads to the remaining men growing panicked and scared. Five days later, another sailor disappears. On the 30th of July, only the captain, his first mate, and two crew members are left. August 2nd would see another crew member vanish. At midnight on the next night, the remaining deckhand disappears, leaving the captain and the first mate the only men on board. The captain reports that the mate is haggard and close to madness. In a panic, the mate, a Romanian, tells his terrifying story. It is here, he whispers to the captain, I know it now. On the watch last night I saw it, like a man, tall and thin and ghostly pale. It was in the bows and looking out. I crept behind it and gave it my knife. But the knife went through it, empty as air. The mate thinks it is in the hold, perhaps in one of the boxes. First mate descends into the hold, only to come flying back out moments later, screaming in terror, telling the captain, He is there. I know the secret now. In a fit of terror and despair, the mate throws himself overboard, preferring drowning to a confrontation with the predator in the shadows. Since the captain feels that it is his duty to remain with the ship, he vows to tie his hands to the wheel and take the ship to port. At this point, the log ends. The log of the Demeter causes so much controversy amongst the townfolk, who regard the captain as a hero for getting the ship home. The reporter ends his narration by stating that the missing dog has yet to be found. The narrative shifts back to Mina's journal and her August 8th entry, The Day of the Great Storm. Then we move forward to August 10th, where Mina indicates that the burial of the sea captain was on this day and that Lucy is very upset about the events of the last few days. In a shocking revelation, we learn that old Mr. Swales was found dead this morning near the graveyard at a seat where Lucy and Mina would often visit with him. According to the doctor, the old man must have fallen back in the seat in some sort of fright because his neck was broken. I'm, I'm going to have to say it. This is a great chapter of a book and stacks up to any segment of a book out there. In a book that's already really great, to have a singular moment like this really stands out. 
I have a tendency to also really enjoy books that are told in this style. I love the diary-like writing of this bit, of the whole book in general, but this chapter especially. It goes from newspaper reports to journals. Um, it's just a really wild and fun ride. This is basically a literary version of a found footage film that we enjoy so much these days. And books like that really tend to put me in the headspace of characters and really level up my reading experience. And this bit of the book really does that expertly. Now I'm going to wrap up this segment with a quote from Emily Alder on Dracula's connection to the sea and the Demeter. Alder writes, Dracula's identification with sailing ships speaks to both the extent and limits of his power. In the 19th century, the wooden sailing warships and merchants of the Age of Sail were giving way to steel-hold windjammers, steamships, and ironclads. Dracula can control the wind that fills the sails and the fog that impedes human navigation, but he cannot affect the modern technologies of steel and steam. However, the advantages that modernity grants to his pursuers decrease the closer Dracula draws to home. They gradually leave behind them all of their modern technological trappings and ultimately defeat him with the weapons of his own time, knives and crucifixes. The power of folklore is thus upheld, but it is also clear that Dracula belongs to a superstitious, superstitious age that is on the way out. So, with the source material covered, let's turn our attention to the quote-unquote four legal reasons altered version of our favorite boat-bound bloodsucker. As we move our seafaring to the strictly cinematic, Murnau lets us know that Nosferatu was coming. The film explains danger was on its way to Weisberg. Caskets filled with dirt were loaded onto the double-masted schooner and Pusa. And thus begins our look at Count Orlok and the trail of the dead left in the Impusa's wake as he spread like a, like a plague to the town of Weisberg. Despite this episode being a bit of a Demeter versus Empusa showdown, it wasn't always that way. As you probably know, F.W. Murnau, Albin Grau, Henrik Lean, all the folks at Prana Film set out to make a legit Dracula film, but that never materialized. For a myriad of legal reasons, they made a few strategic narrative changes and tried their best to pass the film off as their own creation. If you want to learn more about that wild story, we have an episode for you from our first season entitled Stoker vs. Nosferatu. We dig into the filming, the court battles, and the eventual destruction of every copy of the legendary horror film. Well, not every copy as it would turn out. Looking at the original script of Nosferatu, one of the most interesting things you'll find is that the ship is originally referred to as the Demeter. In fact, the script, as written, really draws your attention to the name of the ship. It does not try to hide the fact. Before all the cool nuggets of information start pouring forth, let's acknowledge another great resource for this episode. Much of the original script notes came from Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror, written by Roy A. Stiles. Like I mentioned a moment ago, the film's Empusa actually started off in the pages of the script as the Demeter. The script reads, Longshot, a big hand pulley, steam crane, hauls up one of the boxes and drops it into the belly of the sailing boat that is anchored at the quay. At the ship's stern, one can discern a name underneath the Baroque figurehead, Demeter. All throughout this boating segment, Galeen regularly draws attention and draws the eye to the name Demeter. It's a really interesting quirk to see in the script, and a tip-off that the origins of this film come squarely from Stoker's novel. We are shown scenes of men loading the scary cargo onto the ship, and we learn it is to set sail tonight. 
To that end, we see inventory and a bill of lading of the ship as it prepares to shove off from Galaz. Cargo. Six crates of dirt for experimental purposes. Galaz. August 17, 1838. Like the customs inspector, let's dig into the scene a little deeper via the film script freely adapted by Henrik Galeen. He writes, Normal shot. The inspector smiles incredulously. He orders a search. Barefooted dock workers drag up one of the apparently very heavy boxes, heaving and swearing. The inspector gives an order. They open the lid with difficulty. There is earth inside. The inspector gives another order. Turn it out. The workers obey. Sand is falling out. Nothing but earth. Satisfied, the inspector turns to another pile of cargo. Yet in the sand, something moves violently. Something's alive. Jumps out. Horrible animals. Rats. One of the dock workers who bends over to scoop the scattered sand back hits out violently. Did not one of the animals, reeling from the blow, bite his foot? In an effort to make sure everything is on the up and up, the crew examines one of the crates. It is indeed filled with dirt. Okay, so it wasn't just dirt. It was also filled with rats. That crate that was overturned and tons of these creepy things spill out and scurry around. And a foot even gets bitten. This should inform us that disaster is in store for these sailors and sea folk. After some interludes from Professor Bulware, Hutter, and Ellen, we return our attention to the Impusa. The ship of death now sails forward across the sea. Throughout this voyage, there will be an intercutting of Hutter's dramatic and desperate journey to beat Nosferatu back to his beloved Ellen. For the purposes of this episode, however, we will concern ourselves only with the journey of the Impusa from here on out. Speaking of boats with multiple names, let's add one more to the list. In his book Nosferatu by Kevin Jackson, we learn the third name being thrown into the mix. This is the actual name of the boat they used to film on. Jackson writes, For the sea sequences, the team hired a sailing boat, the Jürgen, and towed it from Weismar to the island of Pole. All right, so now that I think about it, it turns out we fibbed a little bit. We are going to talk a little bit about Hutter real quick in relation to his journey home and how that ties to Orlok's voyage on the Ampusa trying to beat him. So this return home does play a big part in how Murnau filmed this portion of the film. In an article written for the British Film Institute entitled Shadow and Substance, F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu, written by Gilberto Perez Guillermo, we learn some of the technical tricks Murnau employed. Perez Guillermo writes, The trick photography, like the odd camera angles, Murnau uses deliberately as an indistancing device. As such, it becomes less and less prominent as the film moves from the remoteness of the Carpathian Castle to the greater immediacy of the Baltic town. The clerk, having literally miraculously survived the encounter with Nosferatu, sets for home. Parallel to him, and with the same destination, a ship advances carrying Nosferatu and the earth-filled coffins. The two parallel motions, as well as various details from the Baltic town, are bound together in an intricate cross-cut structure, no doubt influenced by Griffith, a structure dominated by the recurring massive ship, and culminating with accumulated force in the highly charged image of the ship's arrival in town. The clerk's journey plays out only a secondary role. Significantly, even as his wife awaits his return, she instinctively turns towards the sea, the sea that brings Nosferatu in the coffins. This is a really fantastic article with a lot of great information in it, and you can find it at www.bfi.org.uk. Again, it was written by Gilberto Perez Guillermo. 
One side story we will concern ourselves with is that of Nock. In his cell, he manages to steal a newspaper and reads this chilling story. Well, chilling for us. For him, it's a good omen. He reads, Plague. A plague epidemic has broken out in Transylvania and in the Black Sea ports of Varna and Galaz. Masses of young people are dying. All victims appear to have the same strange wounds on their necks, the origin of which is still a mystery to doctors. The Dardanelles have been closed to all ships suspected of carrying the plague. Back on the ship, things seem to be going along just fine. Or are they? It's daylight when the first mate runs down to the captain's quarters to tell the captain of a sailor who has taken ill below deck and that he is delirious. The captain, pipe in hand, goes to investigate. Since we're talking about the captain of the Impusa, let's talk about the man behind the man. Let me start that over again. Since we're talking about the captain of the Impusa, let's talk about the man behind the captaincy, actor Max Nimitz. Nimitz was born on October 19th, 1884, or September 7th, 1886, depending on where you look. The future screen and stage actor was born in Bremen, Germany. His acting career started in the early 1920s. The first role I could find came in 1921, with his role in Osferatu coming shortly after in 1922. Oddly enough, his career would pick up in the 1950s and 60s. His filmography seems to consist, no surprise, of mostly German productions. He passed away of non-vampire causes on July 2, 1971, in Baden-Württemberg, Germany. Now, when they, the first mate and the captain go down, they see a seaman, a sick seaman in a hammock, not looking so good. The captain doesn't seem to think things are too bad off, though. Water is given to the sailor, and he is allowed to get some rest. But rest can only do so much until that's when a sailor wakes up and finds himself alone in a cargo hold with a bunch of boxes of dirt. But it's not just a bunch of boxes of dirt. He sees a ghostly figure in the distance. It is Nosferatu but it's a ghostly see-through image of the vampire. The image soon flickers out, but the sailor is spooked to say the least. We soon learn that poor sailor was only the first of many doomed to death. It spread like a scourge through the ship. The first sailor that was infected pulled the whole crew down into a dark, watery grave. By the light of the sinking sun, the captain and the first mate said goodbye to the last of their comrades. Since the crew of the Empusa didn't get a ton of love in our original Nosferatu episode, we're going to keep this bio-action going with Empusa's first mate. That crew member in this picture is played by Wolfgang Heinz. Born David Hirsch, the actor was born on May 18, 1900 in Austria-Hungary. At the age of 17, the young man began his pursuit of an acting career. He was a natural talent from the get-go, having never attended any studios or classes. Heinz was able to land roles in theater productions from Berlin to Hamburg. His on-screen debut came in the 1919 film Die Gjachten. There's going to be a lot of bad German pronunciations in this episode, uh, forewarning. His third gig was as first mate on the Impusa. By 1923, his career in acting looked to be all but over. Voice problems forced him out of the acting business for three years. Remember... His prime acting was theatrical, so not having a functioning voice definitely presented some issues. Over time, though, Heinz's vo vocal problems lessened, and by 1926, Max Reinhardt brought him into the acting fold of the Deutsches Theater. It was here where he added the title of director to his resume. But just as he was getting into the swing of things, he was dismissed from his job in 1933, due in part to his being Jewish. 
Now in exile, he hopped around from the Netherlands to Great Britain to Vienna before settling down in Switzerland. While in the land of the Swiss, he got back to directing plays. In addition to acting, politics played a big part in Heinz's life. In the early 30s, he was a member of the Communist Party of Germany. In Switzerland, he was a founder and president of the Swiss Free Austrian Movement. After the end of World War II, he emigrated to the Soviet-occupied section of Vienna and joined the Communist Party of Austria. Throughout the 40s and 50s, Heinz was a con constantly working actor, mainly on the theatrical stages. In 1959, he took his vast experience and knowledge and moved into a new phase of life where he became the head of the National Theater School in Berlin, a post he would hold until 1962. In 1960, he became a professor and member of the Academy of the Arts. In, in 1963, he joined the Socialist Unity Party of Germany. That same year, he became a theater director and manager, holding this position until 1969. He was a man respected in acting in an entertainment field by everyone, so much so that in 1966, Heinz was appointed head of the East German Theater Artists Association, an office he would hold until his death. Between 1968 and 1974, he was the president of the Academy of the Arts. In 1975, he made his last appearance on stage. After that, he became an honorary member of the Deutsches Theater. On the award front, Heinz was just as prosperous. Heinz received the Patriotic Order of Merit in 1965 with an honorary clasp granted in 1980. He also received the National Prize of East Germany in 1968, the Order of Karl Marx in 1974, and the Goth Prize of Berlin in 1976. On September 30, 1983, he was granted an honorary citizenship of the city of Berlin by the authorities in East Berlin. After the German reunification, Heinz's status was retained by the city council since his theater career started in the capital before the communist rule and was independent of it. Wolfgang Heinz died in October 30, 1982 in Berlin. He was 82 years old. Heinz was buried in the Aldershof Cemetery in Berlin. But that death wasn't the end of the honors for Wolfgang or people in the acting field. After his death, a Wolfgang Heinz ring was bestowed annually to new and promising young actors by the Theater Artists Association. Following the reunification, the right to award the ring was passed to the manager of the Deutsch Theater. So with our little excursion into the, the world of the biography done, let's head back aboard the Impusa and catch up with the captain and the first mate who are now tying up that last corpse and preparing for a burial at sea. The two men dump the body overboard. Their sadness now turns to anger. The first mate wants to know why everyone is dying and hopefully put a stop to it. He grabs an axe and tells the captain, I am going below. If I'm not back up again in 10 minutes, he, and we know this is probably not going to end well for him when you end a sentence like that. He is making his way down with hate in his heart looking for answers and retribution. The first thing he does is start hacking away at one of the caskets slash crates. He is greeted by tons of dirty rats pouring out of the chopped holes. The appearance of vermin is not enough to discourage him. He continues, only to be stopped by the lid of one of the coffins flying off and Nosferatu's ghastly body rising to the upright position in one of the most famous scenes in film history. According to Sylvia Cruz La Pena, the ship used for filming brought its fair share of sounds for a silent film. Her article is entitled, 
the rich sound history of Nosferatu, a silent film classic, and can be found at the website of the El Pais newspaper, which is english.elpais.com. Cruz La Pena writes, On the set of Nosferatu, there were also less pleasant sounds, like the rubbing and gnawing of the 50 rats that the production team bought after placing an ad in the press in order to fill the hold of the ship in which the vampire arrives in the city. That ship, the Jurgen, also appears morose and mute on the screen, as if it were a ghost, despite the fact that Walter Spies, Murnau's partner in a very active presence during filming, explained in his memoirs that the noise it made when entering the port of Weismar to shoot those scenes was thunderous. Though the first mate was full of piss and vinegar heading down into the hold, the undead ghoul manages to scare the first mate right off the boat, literally. He runs back up to the deck as Nosferatu reaches for him. Lottie Eisner, in her landmark German film tome, The Haunted Screen, writes, Murnau created an atmosphere of horror by a forward movement of the actors towards the camera. The hideous form of the vampire approaches with exasperating slowness, moving from the extreme depth of one shot towards another in which he suddenly becomes enormous. Murnau had a complete grasp of the visual power that can be won from editing, and the virtuosity with which he directs this succession of shots has real genius. Now, Eisner wasn't the only expert to key in on Murnau's visual prowess. In a film full of memorable moments and gorgeous visuals, the time spent on the Impusa really stands out to audiences and experts alike. Famous film critic Roger Ebert weighs in with this. He writes, The shots on the ship are the ones that everyone remembers. The cargo is a stack of coffins, all filled with earth from the nourishing graveyards of the plague. Crew members sicken and die. A brave mate goes below with a hatchet to open a coffin and rats tumble out. Then Count Orlock rises straight up, stiff and eerie, from one of the coffins, in a shot that was as frightening and famous in its time as the rotating head in The Exorcist. We have moved topside now and the captain is at the wheel. He hears the commotion and ruckus raised by his first mate. He looks to see what is wrong. The ship is destined for ghost ship status at this point, and the captain is powerless to do anything to stop it. Like any captain worth his salt, he must go down with his ship. As we break this bit down, let's look at this by turning back to the original script as written by Henrik Galeen with some notes by Murnau himself. Galeen writes, Scene 99, fade in, on deck. The captain is guarding the helm. Then from the hatch... The mate emerges. His hair has turned gray. His face looks crazed. He is foaming at the mouth, trying to escape. He sways, turns deliriously in a circle, loses his sense of direction, does not see the railing and overshoots it, falling head first. The captain watches in horror. Now he is left all alone, but his face remains determined. He picks up a rope and ties himself to the helm, not to be tempted to leave it. Thus he awaits the horror fade out. The horror described is the legendary backlit shot of Nosferatu as he glides across the doomed ship. He is making a beeline straight towards the captain. The captain sees this oncoming doom and is horrified. Kevin Jackson dives deeper into this shot. Jackson writes, a grimly beautiful shot of the ship strongly backlit so that both its body and its sails appear to be black. Murnau's term for back backlighting throughout the script is taken from his studies in art history, contre-jour, literally against the day. The term recurs several times in Murnau's annotations. The technique is obviously adaptable to different ends, 
but in Nosferatu it is usually deployed to create images of beauty associated with awe, fear, and even pain, rather than health, pleasure, and calm. While we're chatting a bit about how Murnau chose to film certain scenes, let's add Lottie Eisner and her insights back into the discussion. This quote is especially topical considering the scene we just discussed. Eisner writes, Murnau could also enhance the effect of a transversal movement by spreading it over the whole screen. For instance, the dark phantom vessel speeding with all sails set over a surging sea and ominously entering the harbor, or again, the low-angle shot of the enormous silhouette of the vampire crossing the vessel to reach his prey. Here, the camera angle confers on him, in addition to his gigantic proportions, a kind of obliqueness which projects him out of the screen and makes him into a sort of tangible, three-dimensional menace. The Death Ship has a new captain, the film tells us, as we watch the ship, as we watch the ship sail on through the night. How is it sailing, you ask? The deadly breath of Nosferatu filled the sails of the ship so that it flew towards its goal with supernatural speed. The ship pushes forward through the terrible weather at sea. The count is near to Weisborg. Intercut with the ship plunging across the sea is more of Hutter's desperation and Ellen's bewitched self, sensing Orlock. Back in Nock's cell, he looks through a small window and sees the unmanned death ship slowly floating down a Weisborgian canal. The master has arrived. The entry of the ship into the scene is slow and incredibly creepy, setting the scene for what is about to be learned about the ship. This arrival of the ghost ship is incredibly memorable and sends chills through a viewer's spine, no doubt. Kevin Jackson even explores the importance of this shot and its composition. He writes, Then, probably the single most haunting image in Nosferatu, the ship, no living soul on board, sails along the canal from screen right to left. There is no sign of anyone ashore either. As it crosses the screen, the ship blocks out the cathedral. Supernatural evil has triumphed over supernatural good. Spelled out, the symbolism seems a little heavy-handed, but on screen the effect is more subtle and insidious. Looking at Galeen's script, we get a terrifying scene set before us, and the script notes give us a fascinating look at what Murnau's vision for this moment was. Scene 113A, The Stranded Ship. Dead and forsaken, a rope is dangling from the deck. It is, is it swaying with the wind? Medium close-up, an endless number of rats climbing down the swaying rope. Shot of deck, the hatch, it opens slowly. Nosferatu climbs out. He carries the last coffin, remains standing, motionless, the image of death. Then he approaches slowly. Now this next bit are notes written in the script by Murnau. Note 1, ship anchored in the harbor dissolve note two ships hatch with a piece of deck trick one canvas glides away from hatch two hatch lid is lifted three rats are rushing on deck four nosferatu coffin in arm climbs out the trick Murnau makes note of is actually some great stop motion bits of nosferatu opening the hatch and peeking out at his new feeding ground orlock isn't the only one leaving the boat like the script said all those little rat friends of his take this chance to disembark as well. Mental Floss's Mark Mancini explains how the trick is done at two different points in this voyage. He writes, At one point, Orlok's coffin closes by itself after the lid levitates off the ground. An early form of stop-motion animation made this possible. By rapidly showing a sequence of still images in which the lid moves closer and closer to its final resting spot, Murnau was able to trick the viewer into thinking 
that the inanimate object was flying around under its own power. The same technique was also employed during the scene in which Orlok uses his magic to open the hatch of a ship. The film, much like the book, is told from a narrator's point of view. A narrator talks about the events of the Weisborg Plague after the fact. At this point he says, I have wondered for a long time why it was said that Nosferatu took his coffins with him filled with dirt. I have surmised that vampires can only draw their shadowy strength from the cursed earth in which they were buried. To that end, in the dark of night, Nosferatu takes his coffins off the boat and to land, more specifically the piece of real estate he bought. With it being the dead of night, there are no witnesses, and the morning will only bring forth mystery surrounding the Impusa. With the vampire on solid ground and Hutter having reached Ellen, our tale with them comes to an end, but the story of the Impusa is only beginning. If you thought all of that was scary, buckle up for some fun with courtrooms, investigation, and bureaucracy. It's the next morning, and city officials are trying to figure out the deal with this ghost ship. They lay a plank up to get a better look and take a peek. They are not prepared at all for what they find. The dead captain is still tied to the wheel. They untie the dead body and carry him away. They have looked everywhere, and there is not a living soul on board. Whilst investigating, the captain's log is found. In the previous Nosferatu episode, I kind of speed ran this portion of the film. But since we are here for nautical nastiness, a more in-depth look seems appropriate. The film gives hints and subtle clues to what happened on board the last voyage of the Impusa, but much like the book, it is the captain's log that really adds to the sense of dread and really makes you wonder what happened down in that cargo hold. The log is read, Varna, 12 July, crew, besides myself the captain, one helmsman, one ship's mate, five sailors. Day 2, 13 July. One sailor has taken ill with fever, heading south-southwest, wind direction northeast. Day 3, 14 July. Mate is talking nonsense, claims an unknown passenger is below deck. Day 10, 22 July. Rats in the hold of the ship, danger of plague. Though not nearly as in-depth as the logs from the novel, what little we get really plays with the imagination. We don't see the murder or the mayhem, but we feel it. And the fact that this log is read with the corpse of the captain right there in the town hall adds to the morbidity of it all. This bit about the plague gets the town officials all worried and up in arms. Their inquest quickly comes to an end. They order everyone to bolt all doors and windows. And with that, our foreway into the who, what, where, and why of the Impusa comes to a close. As mentioned before, this is just a taste of this great film. And if you look back in our back catalog, we have a lot of... Nosferatu-centric episodes for you to enjoy that really fills out uh, more of the Nosferatu lore. But this one was a fun one. We wanted to take a look at one specific moment in time. In his book, German Expressionist Cinema, author Ian Roberts really puts a nice bow on the voyage of the Ampusa and its real-world inspirations. He writes, the war on the Eastern Front had been particularly unforgiving and had served to reinforce the long-standing belief that the lands to the east of Germany were a threat to the Germans' existence. Nosferatu, an eastern count who travels to Germany to claim Hutter's wife, and who brings death and pestilence with him, conforms perfectly to these racial stereotypes, thus enhancing the thrill of fear generated by the film's images. When Nosferatu loads his earth-filled coffins for the journey westwards, and when the crew of the Impusa die in turn aboard the rat-infested ship, the audience shudders in unspoken acknowledgement of this xenophobia. And that is where we will leave this discussion of these two boats. It's been a really fun but really deadly journey 
that will lead nicely into our next episode. This has been such a fun episode to put together. Whether it is in the novel or the silver screen, Dracula or Nosferatu's Voyage by Sea is one of the most memorable moments in fiction. It says a lot that such a small percentage of a story can leave a reader or viewer with such intense emotions and striking imagery. This is one of the coolest things about all of this. The horror and terror comes with what you don't see, really. And in my book, that is the best way to build the tension and unease, which eventually becomes horror. Sailors die or go missing, but most of it happens off screen or out of view. You know terrible things are happening in the shadows of the cargo hold and the darkness of the night watches, but you never see it firsthand. In the novel and film, one thing all the forms have in common is their lack of visual scares. They all succeed in building the tension and let the monstrous acts of Nosferatu play out in your mind. Speaking of that next episode, and speaking of not seeing violence, we will go into those shadows and see a terrifying, hungry, and desperate vampire and the crew that tries to hold back the inevitable. The horror on that schooner will be laid bare, and in a rare occurrence for the Golden Silent Films podcast, we're going to discuss it. The Last Voyage of the Demeter is not just scary because of deadly vampires, but also because it has sound. We'll be taking a look at this recently released film, The Last Voyage of the Demeter, but have no fear, fine listeners. This is a non-canon bonus episode that we are doing purely for giggles and felt it dovetailed nicely with this episode. And we love vampires, what more can I say? With the episode now safely on solid ground, we want to thank you for surviving this trip with us. It's been a journey of thrills and chills and maritime murder. For the second episode in a row, we have veered from our original episode schedule, but this has been a worthwhile detour, I think, if you ask us. Did you enjoy our breakdown of multiple vampires on multiple boats? Which seafaring trip did you prefer, literary or cinematic? What other instances of the famous Dracula boat trips should we look into? Have you ever seen a ghost ship? I know it's not movie related, but still fascinating to hear if you have. Let us know all that and more at the various social media hangouts of the Golden Silent Films podcast. On that note, if you didn't recall, we are on Instagram and Twitter or X. Let us know what you think of this episode. What silent related movies, past or present, do you want us to dip into next? Our world of silent movie knowledge and experience is constantly growing, and we always need your input for our future episodes here in Season 3 and beyond. You can always sink your teeth into the Golden Silence cast on Instagram or at Golden Silence 1 on Twitter or X or whatever it may be called by the time you hear this. And again, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast outlet that allows it, subscribe, rate, and review. I reckon it'll help a lot here, and we love hearing your thoughts and ideas. We really, really appreciate all of your incredible support, and seeing how much you folks are listening only makes us want to make bigger and better episodes for all of you. And with all that having been said... Thank you to all of you fine listeners out there for all of your fine listening. And don't forget, the silence are golden, and the talkies are just a fad. And be careful on boats. Uh-huh.